presence of God is always with you. We've been joined together. So, going back to Hebrews, going back to uh, chapter 11, verse 17. I'm going slow so that I make sure I put all this together. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt to show you that Abraham had a revelation of Jesus. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. He had received the promise, he offered up his son. Why is that significant? Because he understood the only way the promise could come into the earth was through Isaac. He had been promised a lineage. He had been promised a family. He only had one son. He understood that that promise had to come through Isaac. Of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him as a, in a figurative sense. One of the translations says that he could raise him from the dead, which he also received him back as a type. What does that mean? That means Abraham received Isaac in the promise, in the, the revelation of the promise. He received Isaac as a type. A type of what? A type of Christ. He understood the significance. He may not have understood everything that would, would be in Christ and in the Messiah, but he understood there was coming a Messiah. And he understood that what he was participating in was some type of message about Christ. People say that, that the only reason Isaac was demanded by God was so that God could test Abraham. No, it wasn't. That was part of the process, but what God was intending to do was show Abraham a revelation of the Christ. How do you know that? Go back to Exodus 33 when Moses and his son is walking up the mountain for the sacrifice. Isaac looks around and he says what? Hey, we got the wood, we got everything we need to build the fire. Where's the sacrifice? What does Abraham tell him? God will provide himself a what? Lamb. What was caught in the thicket? A ram, not a lamb. So when Abraham had a revelation to speak to Isaac and he said God will provide himself a lamb, why did he say lamb? And God didn't provide a lamb. He provided a ram. A ram's horn was caught in the thicket. Because if you, if, geographically, if you go to where they believe this event took place and if you view where they believe the ram was caught, Right over the crest of that mountain, you see Mount Calvary. So when Abraham, Abraham looked at the ram, right over the hill there was Mount Calvary. He had, a, he had a revelation that there was going to be a Christ, and he was beginning to understand that Isaac was a type of that Christ. I believe Abraham had a revelation of Jesus. He saw, he may not have understood everything in detail, but he saw Christ. He saw God's revelation and he saw that there was a place that was going to be built, a city that was going to be built upon Christ being the chief cornerstone and Abraham got a revelation of that and he began to yearn for that and he wanted to see that, knew he wouldn't see it, knew he wouldn't live long to see it, but he understood the revelation of Jesus. He understood that there was coming a Messiah. He longed for that day and that was the city he was looking for. That's where you live. Abraham looked into the future and saw this time that we live in, where there would be a city built upon the foundation. Abraham looked for a city that had foundations. He looked for what we live in, a city that's built on the foundation of the blood of Jesus Christ 
and the apostles and prophets. And that's what we're experiencing. Check this out. See if I can get to it. Look at um, verse 23 in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, check this out now, when he became an age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. Considering the reproach of what? Who's he talking about? How does Moses know anything about the reproach of Christ? He says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. So Moses is comparing the treasures of Egypt against what he's going to endure for Christ. I don't know if y'all know anything about history, but those two don't walk the earth at the same time. Moses walks the earth way before Christ. So Moses had to have had a revelation of Christ also. For he looked to the reward. Moses had a re the same revelation. God's been giving his dream to his people since time began. He gave it to Abraham and he gave it to Moses. Check this out. Moses... In Exodus 33, I gave you the wrong scripture earlier about Abraham. This Exodus 33 is where Moses' account, he asked God, show me your glory. All right, let's go to that. I want you to see that because there's some scripture there I don't want you to miss. Exodus 33. Why does this matter? Because I'm just trying to show you that we're participating in something more than Christ did not come to this earth to establish Christianity. Christianity is a religion. He didn't come to establish Christianity. He didn't come to establish church. He didn't come to establish anything other than kingdom. If you read about Christ teaching and preaching anything, it's always kingdom. He said the kingdom of God is this, and he would always give you illustrations. Six illustrations he gave you why he lived, comparing how you walk on this earth to a kingdom. The word of God says that Christ went and taught the kingdom, preached the kingdom. He told his disciples, go and preach the kingdom of heaven has come. He said, pray like this, thy kingdom come. Everything Christ was about was kingdom. Not Christianity, not, not uh, Christian living, not the Ten Commandments. He didn't come to emphatically enforce any of those. He came to, to, under, to, to establish an understanding of God's dream, and that was kingdom. All of those other things pertain to kingdom, but they're not a focus. The, the gospel of grace <coughs> takes living for God to a, another level. You want to talk about the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. Ten Commandments. Christ said what? If you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. The Ten Commandments says don't kill. Christ said what? If you hate somebody, you're already committing murder. So the gospel of grace is not a weak gospel. It's a gospel that encourages you to pursue holiness at a higher level than the law demanded. So Christ didn't come to implement the Ten Commandments and reinforce those so that we could put them up on a plaque somewhere in a hall of justice and look at them and say, praise God, we're holy because we have them written there on the wall. <coughs> 
He came to establish kingdom, and within that kingdom, he tells you to pursue peace and holiness. So it's not a weak gospel. It's not a watered-down gospel. It's not a take-it-how-you-want-it gospel. He came to preach kingdom and nothing else. And anything being taught outside of kingdom is incorrect biblically. Exodus chapter 33. <coughs> Look at verse 18. This is Moses talking with God. If you notice, Abraham and Moses both have a personal relationship with God to the point that they talk to God and God talks back. Okay? So if you sit there in your prayer time and you don't ever hear anything, that's not, that's not God's communication with you. You have some problems there. You need to fast. You need to do whatever you need to do to be able to get to a place where you can hear the voice of God because God is always speaking. And if you're not hearing His voice, then it's never a problem on His end because you never see in the Word where God's not speaking to His people. He's having communication. Moses is talking with God, and he says, God, this is what I want from you. Show me your glory. All right? I'm going to present to you, this is all my, my belief. There's, there's really, uh, I believe there's things in the Bible that substantiate this, but you understand with God, why are humans so mesmerized with time travel? Because with God, there is no time continuum. You understand that? We have days, years, months. God don't have all that. All right? He's omnipresent. He's in past, present, future. He's in all of those at the same time. So if he's in the past and future at the same time, people who come into his presence could have possibly been in those places at the same time. Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. All right? Listen to how we always say God picked him up and stuck him in a cave and walked past him. But... I'm not sure that's the case because it doesn't say I'm going to put you in a cave. All right? He said, I will make my goodness pass before you. You need to research that word. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So what does that mean? I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And the Lord said... Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. There is a place by me, a secret place. David calls it in Psalms. There's a secret place. God tells uh, Moses, there's a place by me, and you will stand on the rock. He doesn't say, does that mean every time that we want to be in the presence of God, we've got to get on the side of a mountain? There's a place by me, and it's a mountain. There's a place by me, a specific cave in the earth, and you can get in that cave and I will pass by you. No, he didn't say I'm going to set you on a mountain. He said there's a place by me and you will stand on the rock. Well, in the New Testament, in Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Ephesians, who is referred to as the, the rock? Christ. Christ is referred to as the rock of our salvation. A chief cornerstone. What is a chief cornerstone? It's a big rock that's been hewn out and laid that the building sets on. And God is saying, there's a place by me that I will bring you into Revelation and show you things that are to come. And those things are the rock. So Moses, check this out. God, and the Lord said, here's a place by me, verse 22. So it shall be while my glory passes by you that I will put you in the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face you'll not see. Some people believe that when God took Moses and put him in the rock, 
if you go to all the Gospels, they give an account of the, of the disciples who were close to God. They went up on a mountain, and they all fell asleep. And they woke up, and they saw what? Christ transfigured. They saw him transformed. No longer in the image of a human. He took on the form of an angelic being. Christ, they call it the Mount of Transfiguration. Who was he talking to? Elijah and Moses. So Christ, now I understand the significance of what Christ was doing. Elijah, to the people of Israel, was sought or, or seen to be a person who would be a forerunner of the second coming of Jesus. Moses represented the old law. I understand all that. And, and maybe God was trying to give them a metaphor. I don't know. Seems like he would have just spoken clearly. But it is possible that when Moses said, let me see your glory, and God took Moses and set him on the rock, that God took him into the future and allowed Jesus to have a conversation with him to explain what was going to happen and then brought Moses back to his day. Because with God, there's no time continuum. There's, there's no boundaries that, that dissect past, present, and future. You say, well, I don't understand. You can't understand that because you're not spirit. You're not God. You're man who is, who is bound by time. Is it not ironic that man is constantly seeking a way to time travel? Where do you think that these yearnings come from? They're put there by God because that's his nature. He's not restricted by time. He's not restricted by these boundaries that man has set. God set them up day and night, separated the two. Man had to operate within a structure of time, but God is not like that. So it is possible that he took Moses, took Christ, and allowed them to meet together to talk because the Bible says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ far better than the gains of Egypt. He didn't know who Christ was unless he had met him or had some revelation of who he would be. Why does that matter? Because Moses was looking for that same city that Abraham was looking for. Why? Because they both got a revelation of Jesus Christ. Why, why are you telling me this? Because they, Abraham and Moses, and all, according to Paul, all of those who have gone before us, those who have bled and been sawn in half and who have been flayed alive and those who have been boiled alive in hot oil, those who have been staked on a stake and burned in Nero's garden alive because they believed in Christ, those people sought your day. They craved to live in the time that you live in. Somebody who is willing to be boiled in hot oil alive because they so believe in God, what do you think they would have accomplished in the earth today? What do you think that somebody who knows you are about to be burned alive if you don't deny God and they would not deny God, what do you think they would accomplish in this day? They so desired to be in a time where they could walk this earth and declare God freely. And we live in this time and we do nothing with it. We want to know what tomorrow holds for us. What do you think Paul who was crucified John, who was hung upside down and then cut in half. What do you think about these people who laid down their life for the gospel? They so wanted to live in this day. And Paul recognized that that day had come, that he had read about Abraham and read about Moses and understood their revelation. And God had showed Paul, that time has come. So we live in this city. 
God is trying to establish a city. Why does that matter to us? Because if you understand this, you can't just walk through life like any other church person. You can't just walk through earth as a church person who wants to go to church on Sunday and then you don't think about it until next Sunday. You can't do that when you understand that God is trying to establish a city that houses His continual presence. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and then we'll get to Psalms. she said I'll tell you what I told you the wrong one I don't want to read that yet Ephesians 2 let's go to Hebrews 12 it'll make more sense to you based upon what we just said about Moses Hebrews chapter 11 is talking about the people of faith it talks about Abraham and the revelation he had it goes right into talking to Moses about the revelation he had and then it goes to verse 39. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So you see that God has interwoven all of us together. We're not separated. Verse 12, therefore we also, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So Paul shows us that Abraham, Moses, and all of the ones who have died were to be made perfect with us in this city. And now we are surrounded. If, if these people, and listen, I'm not saying that Paul's going to walk into your bedroom tonight and manifest and teach you a lesson. But I'm saying, my, my point is to try to make that there is not a barrier between these two realms, heaven and earth. It's not separate. It's not intended to be. If all of these witnesses are in heaven, and you've seen portraits of this, you've seen paintings of this, they're looking over the rail of heaven down to earth, cheering you on. How could you be surrounded by them? He said, now we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. If they're in heaven and you're down here, how are you surrounded by them? Let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run the race with endurance set before us, looking unto Jesus, author and finisher of our faith. Go to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. He goes on to say, Abraham saw it, Moses saw it, now we're getting a revelation of it, and this is where we're living. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the media, all of these things are being brought together in this city. Verse 28, 
I could read all this, but it would just get your mind on something else. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably in reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Since we are, Paul said, we are receiving a kingdom. Kingdom. We're going to start teaching on Wednesday night, the first of the year, about kingdom and how it actually is listed in the Bible and how Christ taught it and how it differs from what's being taught today and, and how to actually apply the kingdom principles in your everyday life. Because we don't want kingdom to be a buzzword here. Everybody just says kingdom and don't have any idea what that means. We want you to see how kingdom walks out in your everyday life and what Christ actually taught about kingdom. Because Christ, I believe, would be sickened at what we call church today. I really do. I, I was watching something this guy was teaching on how to put together a successful church. And he said, absolutely under no circumstances should you ever go more than 30 minutes when you're preaching. Because people get tired of sitting there and they, they'll, they won't come back. And I thought, that, that's where we're at. That's where we're at is that we have to manipulate people to come to the house of God and to be taught. We will sit and watch a crappy movie, pay $100 time we buy tickets and popcorn and Coke to watch that two-hour crappy movie. We will discipline ourselves to watch that crappy movie and get up and say, that was a crappy movie. We will go and load up the truck at 5.30 in the morning with everything that we need to tailgate. We'll be in Tuscaloosa at 6.30. We'll set up. We'll tailgate all day. Go to a 6 o'clock game. Get out at 10 o'clock. Pack it up. Set in traffic. Get home at 2. We will do that. But you are telling me that we've, we've created a generation of so-called believers that will be angry if that after they've spent 24 hours in preparation for a football game, we'll be angry if you go 10 minutes over 30. In giving them revelation of God. I don't want no part of that. If that's your church, you don't ever have to worry about me setting in it. If God says shut Freedom Point down, that's fine. But I, ain't never, I will never set in one of them churches. If you come to the house of God with time constraints, you're in the wrong place. Because if God says stay here for eight hours and you're not disciplined enough in your relationship with him to stay there eight hours, you're in the wrong place. We come to this house to worship God who gives you life, who, who allows you to... That God, you come into this house to worship him and learn of him. And we've manipulated and created a church that is set and say, I will give you 30 minutes to learn about this God who regulates the entire cosmos. That, that sickens me. I know it's got to sicken him. Paul would stand, I'm getting off the subject, but I just want to drop this in there. Paul would stand in the amphitheater of Ephesus. And according to history, you won't find this in the Bible, but you can find it in history. Paul would teach to unbelievers for five hours at a time. He would hit, let's just say he hit the podium at eight that morning, and he would preach till one o'clock 
and he would talk to people about the things of God, and they would sit there and listen. Non-believers, because they were so mesmerized with the supernatural and the spiritual that they wanted any information they could get. Unbelievers would sit there for hours, and he would do this two times a day. So for ten hours, Paul would speak about the things of God. Boy, you better be glad you weren't part of that church, because, I mean, none of us would make a cut. How many of us would sit there and hear Paul talk for five hours about the things of God? The things pertaining to life. Life. This God we will stand before. This God you will give an account to. Guys, this God. This God that people won't come to hear about today. This God that half the church is empty, but they don't care because it ain't important enough to them. This God who regulates their very existence, who has the power to give them the power of life and death. This God that they don't read about, don't pray to, don't worship in song outside of the 30 minutes they spend in church. This God who created this planet, this God who sent Christ to reestablish a covenant for you so that you could live in a kingdom and not burn forever in an eternal hell. This God that you will meet face to face. It's not important enough for you to give 30 minutes to two hours of your life one day a week to come and, and participate in that. It's just too much trouble. This God. He saw a city. And in Hebrews chapter 12, he says that we are receiving a kingdom Understand that the writer of Hebrews says that he makes a connection between Abraham, Moses, us, and kingdom. Understanding that we've all been integrated together as one family, not a family in heaven and a family in earth, one family in kingdom. Go back to Psalms 107. We'll end this. This is all birthed out of a revelation that I had. It wasn't my revelation. God just allowed me to see some things, and I questioned God about what it meant, and he was telling me, and you heard that last week. Let's go to, well, let's just start at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you look at yourself in light of mercy and grace, how can you not lay your life down? I mean, if you had pursued the path that you wanted and that you were on, where would that path have carried you? If you could reflect on your life in the light of, in the knowledge of mercy and grace, how does anybody ever have to encourage you to worship? Why would anybody ever have to get up in front of you and say, come on, guys, let's worship? If you realistically looked at yourself because you know who you are, you know what you are like when it's just you. You know you. You know your tendencies. You know all of your disappointing things that are about you that some of the people that you live with don't even know about. You know everything. You know the things that you think. And in light of mercy and grace, how could anybody ever have to encourage you to worship? Encourage you to be at the house of God to worship. Encourage you. To pursue God. How could that be? 
Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Skip over to verse 7. He led them forth by the right way. This, when I began to read Psalms 107, and I was, uh, I was researching another topic, the Lord allowed me to understand the significance of this with what I saw. He led them forth by the right way. A lot of us are here today because we wanted a different path. The path that we were on wasn't necessarily the path that we were seeking. It was not fulfilling. It was not satisfying. Our hearts were being called to a different acknowledgement and revelation of God. So God led us down another path, this path, the right path. Is it the right path? Yeah, it's the right path for us. It's our path. He led them forth the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. So his intention for putting us on the right path was to bring us into a revelation of a city. He was leading us to a city, which is exactly what I saw. I mean, this is blowing my mind when I read it. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Proverbs 27, 7 says this. To a satisfied soul, even the honeycomb, or they even reject the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. To a satisfied soul, they loathe the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. What does that mean? That means when you become satisfied in your walk with God, anything that is beyond your walk, you consider repulsive. In other words, a fully satisfied Christian who's satisfied with showing up at church for two hours, singing hallelujah, and then that's all they do. That's it. They're satisfied in their revelation. They're satisfied in their walk. Everything that we do or anybody else does beyond that, they loathe it. Any worship that is beyond their worship, they loathe. Any time constraints that's beyond what they consider allowable for church, they loathe. Any revelation beyond what they are satisfied in, the Bible says that they loathe because their soul is satisfied. Satisfaction in your soul is very, very dangerous. You should always stay thirsty and hungry for God. Then the Bible says, but those that are thirsty and hungry, even bitter things are sweet. What does that mean? That means Jesus is standing before his disciples and he said, you will not be a part of me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. They thought naturally, cannibalism. They understood there was some spiritual significance, but they didn't understand how to ascertain what that was. And, God, and Christ looks at them after all of his other disciples walks out and he says, are y'all going to leave me too? And they say, no, what you're saying is hard for us to understand, but we Get a revelation that you have the words of eternal life. So their soul was so hungry that when Christ preached something that was kind of bitter to them at the beginning, they still craved it because they were so hungry for the words of God. That's why when, when you have meetings that last three or four hours and you drop about half attendance during those three or four hours, you know, and preachers always comment, well, we know who the hungry ones are because they stayed. That's true. They're so passionate and hungry for, for any word, for any rhema of God that they'll stay three or four hours when everybody else who's satisfied with who they are in God and their revelation of God, they'll leave because they're satisfied. I'm good. I'm good. 
For he satisfies the longing soul, and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. You know what goodness is? Presence. Go back to Exodus 33. God told Moses, I'm going to allow my what to pass before you? My goodness. That means my presence. If your soul is hungry, he will give you his presence. You'll find presence if you're hungry. I promise you, if you're hungry, you will find presence. If you don't experience the presence of God in your life, you have a problem with a hunger. You have a hunger problem. 35, he turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. There he makes the hungry dwell. The path, the wheat field, the brook, and understanding that over the, the hill was the, was the city of God. All of these things that I saw, he makes the hungry dwell there that they may establish a city for a dwelling place. Okay? To sow the fields and plant vineyards that they may yield a fruitful harvest. So beside the city of God is fields, spiritually speaking, where we reap harvest. That's exactly what I saw. I didn't see the vineyard. That'd be cool. That they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them that they multiply greatly. He does not let their cattle decrease. In other words, he doesn't let his blessing in their natural life decrease. All right? Even when, even when the government structure of that land is decreasing. Let me show you that. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes. What does that mean? He pours contempt on the leaders of the land and causes them to wander in wilderness where there is no way. Yet he sets the poor on high far from affliction and makes their families like a flock. In other words, when the, when the economic system, let me put it in our terms, when you are hungry and you live as a resident in this city of God, when the economic structure of the government around you is failing and princes and people who are leaders are going the wrong way, he takes you and sets you on high so that you don't have to worry about anything. As a citizen of the city, I see so many Christians who are panicking about the economy. I'm like, what are you worried about? Why are you so afraid? I mean, you can say whatever you want to about the economic system that we live in. And I'm not saying this, but Alabama was rated the highest giving state in America. And Hoover was rated the highest giving city in America. And I go last night, where did we go? We went to, what was that restaurant? Cajun Steamer. We're driving by Logan's or we're driving by Red Robin even. And we're driving by, and you know what? There's lines out the door. You can't get a parking space in the whole mall. We drive up to Target, and you would think the president was there. You turn off of Highway 11, and as soon as you turn off to go up to the Pinnacle, you stop. Traffic is backed up that far. And there's a bad economy? There are principles in God that apply. Whatever happens on the peripheral in your nation economically does not apply to you. That's a promise. Even when the leaders of your land are being led astray by the enemy... God will set you on high and make your families like a flock. You know what's significant about that? Flocks reproduce. I'm not talking about grandchildren and all that. He's just talking about regenerating after its own kind. The righteous see it and rejoice, and all iniquity stops in their mouth. The righteous see what's happening, and the Word of God says that all iniquity stops in their mouth. 
twofold meaning. You quit speaking things that are contrary to the kingdom, and also you have the power to stop iniquity in the region through what you say. Whoever is wise will observe these things. What's, what's the equal and opposite reality of that? Whoever is a fool won't observe these things. And they will live and understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So, having said all that for two weeks. He's not seeking to establish a church here. I know sometimes it's frustrating when you look around. There's only 10 or 15 people here. But that's why God said you have to look at the potential and not the result. You have to look at the potential of each individual that is there and help develop that into what I'm called calling but he's not trying to develop a church. He's not trying to just get more people into a house so that we can feel good about ourselves. Honestly, a lot of times when a lot of people show up, the people in charge get puffed up. They think they did something. And all the talk is not about, you want to know how you can, un and, and maybe this is unfair, but it's really how I gauge it. Listen to people talk about their church. If God is never mentioned, something's wrong. If all that's ever mentioned is the pastor and the staff and the worship team, and God is never mentioned, you got problems. If people aren't saying the things that God is doing, I'm talking about the people, not the pastor, because he's always going to say that. He feels like he's obligated to say that. But when people post on Facebook what people are doing instead of what God is doing, I think you got a problem. And he wants to establish a city that his name is lifted up. He wants to establish a city where he and his presence is craved, where men seek him and not other men, where men seek him and not their own agenda. That's what he wants to do. That's what he established through Jesus. He brought us back into that city, and that's what he wants to establish here. So I encourage you, continue. Continue to come. Continue to press, even through the frustrating days. Even through the times when you're prepared and you're ready to pour your heart out and half the people don't show up. Even at times when you're cleaning toilets on Sunday morning because they're nasty. Even at times when you're here and you're doing things and it seems like nobody else cares. All of these times in your life when you're walking through the halls of school and because you've made a decision to be different, you're rejected. All of these things, these areas in life where you feel like you, you are going to be alone because you're following this path. All of those times, look at the potential. Everybody that you know that's making a significant influence had to pay a price to get there. Whether it's a sports uh, fan, I mean a sports figure, or a leader in the, in the presidency. They paid a price to get to where they are. And if what you seek is a relationship with God, Intimate, it costs a price. It costs you. Times when you don't feel it. Times when you don't feel God. Times where you don't think God is there. Times where you don't think anything you're saying is making it up past the ceiling. You have to continue in faith. Faith is not seeing. Faith is believing when there's no evidence. Faith is holding on when it gets hard. It's what separates, we say, the men from the boys. Who's willing to pay the price? Who's willing to keep coming to Freedom Point when you don't have friends here? Who's willing to keep coming when, when it's not cool and nobody knows who Freedom Point is? 
when we're sitting here and contending for breakthrough, for God's power to manifest in this place so that people do know about it. <laughs> when we're doing all that, understand the potential of what he's trying to do here. Wouldn't it be worth it if you could just walk through anywhere and lay hands on the sick and see them recover? Wouldn't it be worth it if your family was saved, your whole family was saved? And I'm not talking about going to church and saying they're saved. I'm talking about saved. I'm not talking about we're going, we're going to, you know, just party a little saved. I'm talking about radically saved. When y'all meet for Christmas, people are laying hands on each other. You come into Christmas dinner with a little sinus infection. Somebody said, in the name of Jesus. And the sinus infection actually leaves. These types of families, these types of dwellings, I'm looking for breakthrough when you come into this house, you guys, and you're sick. You never leave sick. You say, my God, I got a headache this morning. I have got to get to church. And you walk in the door, somebody lay your hands on me because you know you're going to get healed. That's the type of potential we have here. And I promise you, when that starts happening, and it will happen, you won't have to worry about mailers and, and flyers and cards and events. People are sick. The Bible says that all of creation is yearning for the manifestation of the sons of God. For somebody to not just say I'm a Christian, but be able to manifest kingdom in their life. Kingdom has no sickness in it. Kingdom has no lack in it. Kingdom has no disease in it. Kingdom has no sorrow. Kingdom has no anxiety. Kingdom has no stress. That's what we're pressing for. Breakthrough in those areas. And, and the earth is yearning for somebody who can manifest kingdom. That's why they don't follow the church anymore. Why would I go to your church? I can get the same thing you're telling me through self-help seminars, and I'm just as likely at your church for my marriage to end in divorce. I'm just as likely to walk in with disease and leave with disease. I'm just as likely to do all those things. Why go? You're telling me I'll miss hell. I don't believe in hell. So why go? I don't know, but that, that church, so-and-so, I know him. And he was born with that short leg, and he's been in a wheelchair ever since. And now I see that brother, and he's got two right legs, and he's walking. There's something going on there more than just what the preacher said. Jesus had illustrative sermons. The problem with this church that we live in now, he illustrated his sermons outside. He walked on water. He laid hands on the sick and saw them recover. He illustrated his sermons out in the world. He didn't bring props on stage and tell you how good it is for all of us to be in the same boat rowing together. He walked to the boat on water and said, if you want to, come on, walk on this water with me. That's what he did. That's kingdom. So I hope this made sense. It did to me. I've got some more revelation on it. You know, I, I've seen some additional things freaked me out because when God shows you something in a, in a whatever, you call it a vision, dream, whatever. If, if you're asleep, it's a dream. If you're not, it's a vision or whatever, a visual aid, I call it. When he shows you something, you have no idea what you're looking at, and then all of a sudden you see it in the Bible or you see, I don't want to get into it, but I saw something, and then this last week I have saw pictures of things over in Israel that match. And it, it was freaking me out. So I was like, whoa, I saw that. Wow, it was dim. 
and I'll show you pictures of it later. Father, we thank you for your presence. I thank you for everybody that came today because I know you're stirring their heart. Lord, help me as a leader. Help all the leaders at Freedom Point. Help all of us live this out in real life. Help us to be an example of this because, you know, we get aggravated when people don't follow, but maybe it's because we don't lead correctly. Maybe it's because we're not leading by example. We're leading only in our words. Help us all to live an illustrative sermon. Help us to manifest kingdom in this earth. Help us to even be awake and aware enough to acknowledge that we live in a kingdom. I mean, help us seriously, Father. When we, when we work and when we have recreational time, help us to be aware of you. Help us to be aware, like the song said this morning, become more aware of your presence. Father, we thank you. Amen. Guys, I appreciate it. If we can, sometime we need to all meet. I don't know when.